This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, May 28, 2023. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Tim Gibbons, the Communications Director for the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, or MRCC, stops by to talk about what's happening at his organization. You may recall that we last spoke with Tim in early December of last year, that's 2022, and today we'll get an update on a few important items. But first, I'd like to remind you that the Kickstarter for Dirt Road Radio is now in motion. Please take a look at dirtroadradio.com and see for yourself where this new and innovative idea for the heartland is headed. Dirt Road Radio is an online streaming radio station dedicated to telling the stories of rural America from rural America itself. It's a community project that connects folks in the heartland through music and arts and culture and news and opinion and good, honest conversation. I'm personally very excited about this project, and I'm also highly involved in it. Dirt Road Radio plans to go on the air in June, and our Kickstarter program is just now getting underway. For more information, see www.dirtroadradio.com. Dirt Road Radio is all one word. Again, that's www.dirtroadradio.com. Tim Gibbons, the Communications Director for the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, or MRCC, joins us now to talk about crises in the heartland. Tim last appeared on Democracy on the Move last December 4th. He joins us again to catch us up on important topics that the MRCC has been working on this year. So, first of all, what is the Missouri Rural Crisis Center? Well, let's start with its motivation. Agriculture in this country is made up of hundreds of thousands of family farms, and the dark reality is that government policies are generally written by and for a few corporate ag businesses. It's like industries taking over the heartland and leaving the family farm behind. The bottom line is that the future of large parts of America's rural environment is threatened. This includes the health and prosperity of rural communities, economic opportunity for farm and rural families, and far-reaching questions about, hey, where do we get our food and how safe is our food? So, Tim, thank you again for joining us today on Democracy on the Move, and welcome back. Well, Dan, thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it, too. Let's, uh, let's talk, first of all, about what took place this year. The Missouri legislature has just wrapped up their business, their 2023 business, and I want to go back like a decade here to back in 2013. We can talk about uh, the Missouri legislature made up it uh, made it possible for foreign companies to purchase up to uh, 275,000 acres of Missouri farmland. Um, this allowed companies like Smithfield and WH Group, or they're both Chinese companies, to purchase over 40,000 acres of Missouri farmland. And so I'm just going to play devil's advocate here for a second. Um, if you allow me, uh, but what was the harm in having foreign ownership? I mean, wouldn't they still be subject to Missouri law? Uh, we always love the devil's advocate, Dan. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, Anytime. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, w- what we know is that the farther that control gets away from the land, um, the less they care about the people that live close to that land. Um, also, you know, farmland is a finite resource. Um, so we need to ensure that, you know, the, the land that we have in Missouri and across our country, um, is owned by, you know, family farmers and, uh, and people that live there. 
you know, people that that have oftentimes lived there for generations. And this is also about food production, like who controls our food. Um, and, you know, food production comes from from land ownership. Um, so when a, a Chinese corporation purchases not only 40,000, over 40,000 acres of Missouri farmland, but also purchases, uh, you know, 25 percent of U.S. pork production. And let me just say that again. They purchased 25 percent of the pork in this country that has far reaching implications, uh, not only to our you know, our local economies and our environment and family farmers and independent livestock production, but also our national security, like who controls our food. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it also has big questions of extracting our resources and our wealth out of our communities, not only, you know, out of our communities to, say, another state, um, but to another country um, and to, a, you know, a possible, possibly adversarial co uh, country. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, you know, there's a lot of issues that go along with foreign corporate ownership of Missouri farmland. And our goal is to ensure that, you know, our farmland is owned by Missouri family farmers. So what do you think is the incentive for for uh, countries like China? I mean, let's pick on China here for a second. They have plenty of real estate, I would think. But why do they want, uh, what do you think there is their incentive for wanting to own U.S. farmland? Well, I, it's not only owning U.S. farmland in the breadbasket of, you know, of our world, um, but also owning a, a major commodity that, that Chinese people eat, which is pork. Uh, you know, pork has an export market in our country. And um, instead of, you know, U.S. producers exporting it to other countries, it's, you know, a Chinese producer um, exporting it to themselves. Um, also, when when you raise uh, livestock in concentration, um, they've got, you know, the, the Smithfield operation in North Missouri has uh, 100,000-ish sows. Um, which is millions and millions of hogs produced in a small area um, that also has implications environmentally um, and on our, our water and on the property rights and livability of, of people that have lived there for generations. So, you know, the, the farther that control gets away from these type of operations, the less they care about those people. Um, so there's, there's a lot of implications that go along with um, not only foreign corporate ownership of Missouri farmland, but who controls our food system. Yeah, we're going to get to CAFOs in a little while. That's concentrated animal feeding operations because that's one of the things that um, I've been I've been talking about a lot on this podcast. But I want to get back to, um, you mentioned in a recent newsletter um, during the last week of the Missouri legislature, legislative session that the Speaker of the House, along with other House, along with other representatives of the House, blocked House Bill 903 from coming to the House floor. And as was mentioned in your newsletter, quote, politics once again got in the way of passing good legislation. However, the stage is set for next year, which just happens to be an election year. Uh, can you fill us in on some of the detail here? What's going on? Well, I mean, I think you you referenced 2013, um, which I think we should go back to 2013, and I'll do it right quick. Um, in 2013, uh, what happened was language that was never a standalone bill that never got heard in any committee, publicly heard in any committee, so the, the public had no chance to voice their opinion on it, got slid into an omnibus bill, which is a bill that, a, a large bill that's got many issues in it, um, at towards the end of session. And that language opened up, at that point, it was 289,000 acres of Missouri farmland to be owned for by corporate interest. Prior to that, it was 0%. 
So that was May 2013. Um, less than a month later, Smithfield got bought by Shinewet, which is the Chinese meat packer. They now changed their name to WH Group. That sort of opened our eyes of why that legislation got passed in the first place. Uh, and it just shows that, you know, corporate lobbyists um, have a have their their ways to get the legislation passed that they need passed within our democratic process. And it shows, you know, how undemocratic our uh, democratic process is at times. Um, after that, our then governor, Governor Nixon, vetoed the legislation um, because we all knew what that legislation was about at that point. And then the legislature came back later that year during veto session and overrode his veto, even though they knew that that was that language was in there to support, um, you know, ch a major Chinese meatpacker. Since then, legislation has been introduced almost every year to roll back um, that acreage that can be owned by foreign corporate interests. And, you know, over the years, we only got, I believe, one hearing on on that legislation. Um, but now this year, all of a sudden, um, because it became a political issue um, and, and races that have gone on, you know, in, in the recent past, um, multiple bills have been were introduced. Um, we testified um, on almost all of the hearings um, for these bills. And, you know, the vast majority of, of legislators down there were in support of limiting and stopping corporate foreign ownership of Missouri farmland. But there were some major lobby groups that were opposed to it. Um, so, you know, it just shows that the way that policies are made are not based upon democracy. Oftentimes, they're not based upon the will of the people. They're not based upon our values. Um, they're based upon special interests. And doing this work for almost two decades now, I just see the sort of the draconian influence of corporate special interests and big money, both in Jeff City and in Washington, D.C., getting in the way of good policies being passed so that we can have strong communities, strong economies, um, you know, and a strong food system, strong national security, just on down the line of everything that we value. You talk also, or we talk a lot about CAFOs in the past, what well, you and I, plus um, I've talked with several other people about it. CAFOs are concentrated animal feeding operations, and you alluded to that earlier. And I basically call them factory farms. And they're they're basically uh, agricultural meat, dairy, or egg facilities where animals are kept and raised in cages. And instead of them going out to get the food, their food is brought to them. And so they don't roam, roam out in the pastures or the fields or the rangelands. And because, you know, these CAFOs concentrate animals in such a small area that the, all the manure in the urine adds up pretty quickly. Uh, I just read up recently that it's estimated that a typical hog produces between two and a half to four times as much waste as a human. Um, you know, and, and I'm just talking about hogs at this point. We can talk about cows as well, but just hogs alone. And uh, it's estimated that there are about oh, nationwide, there are 75 million hogs in the U.S., plus or minus. Uh, I think it's gone down a little bit recently. But in the state of Iowa, as an example, just to our north, the hog to human ratio is about eight to one. So, you know, I'm just doing a little bit of simple math here, and that basically means that hogs alone produce about as much waste as humans in this country. Uh, however, unlike the strict regulations and monitoring of human waste processing, um, by comparison, hog waste is largely unregulated, and this results in the pollution of our streams, our groundwater, uh, not to mention, you know, putting a foul stench in the air. 
Anyway, w- with all this in mind, the Missouri legislature has been pretty friendly to CAFOs in the recent past. Back in 2019, Senate Bill 391 prohibited counties from issuing rules for CAFOs that are any more strict than the state rules. So basically, the states are calling the shots with CAFOs. And, uh, but there is a little bit of a, a light of hope right here in one of your recent newsletters. Um, you cited Bill 631, which was killed, and it would have redefined water contaminant source by, le- by deleting the words non-point source, which includes CAFO waste. So this is a bit cryptic to me. So could you kind of walk me through some of the details and what's going on there? Yeah. Um, and you said a lot there, Dan. I, I just want to just want to point out that CAFOs are animals raised in confinement, raised in close proximity. They're not always, quote unquote, in cages. So I just want to oh, okay. point that out. Um, but, you know, our, our issue with, with CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, are many. Um, you know, one is the the implications on the environment, our water, our air, the property rights of, of people that have lived in, in rural Missouri for, for decades. Um, also, the fact that the industrialization and vertical integration and corporate takeover of the livestock industry via concentrated animal feeding operations or, or factory farms um, have had a destructive impact on independent production of livestock. Missouri um, used to be a vibrant hog producing state. And we had, you know, tens of thousands of independent family farm hog producers. And uh, since the corporate takeover via factory farms of the hog industry, for example, uh, nearly 90% of uh, Missouri hog producers were put out of business. Uh, that's huge amounts of, of economic um, vitality that was pulled out of rural communities. Not only, you know, putting over 20,000 um, Missouri hog producers out of business, putting you know hundreds of thousands of U.S. hog producers out of business, but also negatively impacting our rural main streets that supported independent production of hogs. Um, those small businesses also went out of business. So the, the far-reaching effects of the corporate takeover of our livestock industry um, is, are vast. Um, and it's all based upon policy. Um, that's one thing that we know. Um, so going back to that, undue corporate influence on our state and federal capital buildings and the policies that come out of there and the, the negative impacts of those special interests is something that we really concentrate on. Some, it's a challenge, but it's also you know something that we try to make an opportunity for people to make their voices heard um, in that policymaking process. Um, the, um, the, what was the question about, Dan? It was about more about the environmental impacts. Well, I cited the environmental impacts of CAFOs and uh, oh, and six thirty one and yeah, House yeah and six thirty one, yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, that was um, well. Let me see. Go back here. This is uh, yeah, six thirty one. So you you had mentioned that in your in your newsletter, and yeah, um, there yep. was a bit of a victory about killing that bill. So what was that? What was that well, about? Well, the, the bill, yeah, the, the language we got the language to be taken out of the bill, and it is a little weedy. But CAFOs themselves are considered point source, um, which is sort of an EPA definition of um, what their impact on the environment is going to be, specifically within the Clean Water Act, what their impact on on the water of our state um, could potentially be. Now, the the waste that's then spread on you know neighboring fields that's considered non-point source pollution. Um, and that is the waste that can have very negative impacts on our water quality. We see up in Iowa with the uh, amount of factory farms 
that they have up there and the, and the um, relative amount of of water sources um, and water bodies that are you know considered polluted um, and then you know going all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico um, we just wanted and, and that language that was taking non-point source out of our DNR Department of Natural Resources regulations would actually potentially take us out of compliance with the Clean Water Act um, so you know, getting that language out of that bill um, was was really important. And, and you're right, it was a win. Um, we need some other major wins in order to not only protect our water, air and property rights, but to ensure the, the future viability of independent pro livestock production um, in our state and in our country. And we're really working right now, especially at the federal level, on policies that support independent production of cattle, um, because, you know, they came after, you know, they control the chickens, they control the hogs, they control the beef processing, but they don't control the the initial production of cattle oftentimes. And uh, Missouri's got 50,000 cattle producers, and we need policies to ensure that not only those cattle producers make money and can stay on the land, but also can pass that uh, that land and those operations on to the next generation of, of family farmers. Let me uh, play environmentalist here for a second. I played devil's advocate before, but now I'll play environmentalist. Um, what's the difference if uh, if you have hogs concentrated in a CAFO and producing manure and then taking that manure and spreading it out over fields? What's the, what's the difference between that and actually having the hogs, you know, roaming the fields themselves and, you know, doing what they, you know, producing just as much manure, uh, ideally, I guess, but... Um, wouldn't I mean that's that's kind of the traditional way it was done? Doesn't that produce the same amount of waste either way? Well, it just disperses the waste um, more far and wide across our state, as opposed to on the same land over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, it's just it's just waste concentrated into one area, and it's concentrated waste too. When hogs, the traditional way hogs were raised, they're raised on lots, you know, oftentimes on a what what's called a Cargill front which was a building with an open front and they went out and, you know, uh, had mud to wallow in and then um, would go back and sleep in deep bedded systems. And then the farmer would apply that onto their land. But this wasn't 100,000 hogs in a few counties up in North Missouri that's being um, produced by, you know, Smithfield Foods or, you know, the, the largest hog production corporation in the world that's also a Chinese corporation. So it's about concentration of, of that animal waste and how that animal waste is used on the surrounding landscape. I see. I see. And you talked an awful lot about uh, lobbyists, corporate lobbyists, but the MRCC, the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, is doing some lobbying of its own. And you mentioned uh, going to Washington, D.C. Uh, on behalf of cattle ranchers. Uh, could you go into a little more detail about uh, that lobbying process that you're taking on and, and whether or not you're seeing some success in that area? You know, uh a success, but it's still, um, we're still waiting to see. Um, mm -hmm. The farm bill is, you know, it's a farm bill year. 2023 is a farm bill year. A farm bill year comes around every five-ish years. Um, and and this farm bill expires in uh, September 30th of this year. So, you know, we need major policy change because we're seeing, you know, not only after COVID and supply chain bottlenecks because of, a centralized controlled food system. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, uh, problems with 
you know, increased inflated costs at the grocery store, you know, but we're not seeing those same dollars come back to family farms. It's like, where is that money going? Well, it's going to the to the corporations in the middle. Um, we've had, you know, we have uh, an executive order on, you know, constant too much concentration in industries, including agriculture, like extreme concentration in in agriculture. Um, we see, you know, hearings on Capitol Hill about the discrepancy between retail prices and what producers, what cattle producers are getting paid. Um, we see bills that are being introduced that are meant to address, uh, you know, a centralized controlled food system and the extreme extraction of wealth from our communities and from family farmers and rural economies. Um, and, and those are all due to, in large part, due to farm bills that are status quo, that are written by and for corporate interests and the organizations that represent corporations. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, our argument is we've seen all these things that are meant to address what's going on, on out here that are meant to address corporate written farm bills. But then, you know, the lobbyists and, and the corporations themselves and the politicians in large part are arguing for the same farm bill we've had over the last, you know, over the last, you know, many farm bills. Um, so, you know, we're we brought farmers to Washington, D.C. to talk to our elected representatives and Congress people about that and about the bills that we need um, to support family farmers, to support a decentralized food system, to support our national security um, and on and on and on. All those things that we talk about that we value um, and there's specific things that we're asking for. Yeah, I, you talked about the uh, centralized control system before. I, I read something about that some time ago, so refresh my memory. But it's, it, does it have something to do with tagging each individual cow with a certain sort of uh, radio uh, frequency ID, RFID? Well, that thing? is that is one thing that we're working on that is promoting an even more centralized uh, and central like centralized controlled food system. But I'm speaking specifically to the fact that four meat packers control. 70% of the hog market, that's Smithfield, JBS, Tyson, and Hormel. 70%, four corporations controlling 70% of any market is considered highly concentrated, and it allows them to dictate the price that they pay to producers, um, but also dictate the price paid by consumers. So they can you know, charge consumers as much as possible, pay, pay farmers the least amount as possible so that they can increase their bottom lines. Uh, and four corporations control uh, over 80% of the cattle market or the beef industry. And that's JBS. You'll see the JBS is both in the hog market and in the cattle market and in the poultry market. They control, they own Pilgrim's Pride Poultry at all uh, as well. Um, but four meat packers, JBS, Cargill, um, Marfrig, and Tyson control the beef industry. And JBS and Marfrig are both Brazilian corporations. So, you know, it's not only about you know, controlling our food system with, with family farmers and consumers, but it's also not having foreign multinational corporations controlling our food system in a highly concentrated market where they can extract as much wealth out of the system as possible, charge consumers more and pay producers less. Yeah. It's really hard to compete with lobbyists like this because, you know, on one hand, I'd say, well, that's capitalism in action, right? But on the other hand, if you're if you're actually short circuiting the system by being a powerful lobbyist and getting bills written that are working against people, that's no longer capitalism. That's actually, I don't know, 
cheating in a sense? I mean, it's no, it's it's, it's monopoly it's, control, and it's yeah. not capitalism. You're right. Um, and one of the main things that one of the main policies that we're working for, not only within the farm bill, but also within uh, you know different agencies like uh, the Packers and Stockyards Agency um, out of USDA and our Department of Justice is to um, in strengthen and enforce antitrust laws. Um, you know, the purpose of one of the main purposes of our federal government is to ensure that there's competition within capitalism. And that comes via antitrust laws. And what antitrust laws is, is ensure that there's competition, ensure that there's not uber concentration in these markets. And for too long, specifically since the mid 80s, um, for too long, uh, the the for the strength and enforcement of our antitrust laws are they're both not strong enough and they're not being enforced adequately. So, you know, we're really pushing for antitrust laws to do what they have historically been meant to do. Um, in the mid 80s, there was this change in antitrust. And this is a little weedy, but it changed it from like competition and concentration in markets to what's called the computer, uh, the consumer welfare standard. And what that what that means is it allows corporations when they merge and the Department of Justice says, hey, we're questioning this merger for being anti-competitive, they can say, hey, it's going to be good for the consumer. Here's a study that we paid for that's going to show how this is going to be good for the consumer. Um, what we know is that super concentration um, and lack of competition in markets has not been good for the consumer. And I think we're seeing it um, fully um, right now and over the last couple of years. But it's also not been good for the producer. Um, so family farmers, you know, get paid less. Um, they go out of business like we've seen in the hog market. And we're seeing a slower bleed in the cattle market. But it's real and it's happening. Um, and we're seeing consumers pay record high prices while these same corporations oftentimes report record profits. And, you know, a lot of these corporations are foreign multinational corporations. So, you know, we need to our our elected representatives to actually represent us, the people. Missourians and Americans, as opposed to representing and writing policies for multinational and foreign corporate interests. Yeah. I had to let out a bit of a cynical laugh and you said, here's a study that we paid for. You know, I, I, I was working in a marketing department in a high tech company several years ago, and we would pay for studies all the time. Well, we actually were, were testing other people that were, that were kind of a long story, but basically... What happens when you pay for a study? If the study doesn't reveal what you want it to reveal, you throw it out, right? And you just you you eventually, if you pay for you know if you throw enough spaghetti up against the wall, it'll start to stick. And so you take the studies that are favorable to you, and those are the ones that you present to to the public and say, look at this great study we have. And you know the end result is that you're basically getting your way, and you're trying to legitimize it by wrapping a quote study around it. So I I, I can sort of relate to your frustration there. That's how it works. The first question you always ask yourself when you're reading a study is who paid for it. Yeah, yeah. And if they don't readily tell you who paid for it, then that that uh, the default should be well, you know, someone who has an interest in what the study results are is the person that paid for it. Yeah, and you know, I you know people people out here we're pretty smart. I mean, we see what's going on. I mean, what when. when when the things that we're talking about right now, when we, we have these conversations around our dinner dinner tables, um, when we have these conversations in public meetings that we hold um, in rural Missouri with a wide array of political ideologies in the room, everybody is shaking their head yes because 
it's pretty obvious what's going on. Um, you know, it's not rocket science. Um, so, you know, it's just now getting our elected representatives to actually do something about it and also impacting, uh, you know, the, what people see as being possible. You know, this is, like you said, you know, up against these lobbyists and, you know, billion dollar corporations, it seems like um, an insurmountable task. But the reality is that's the purpose of real democracy. That's what we're fighting for um, is for, you know, something bigger than each of us as individuals um, to represent us and to fight back against injustice and to fight for open, fair and competitive markets, to fight for competitive capitalism. Um, you know, and, you know, it, it's, it makes sense. And across the board, um, politically, um, the vast majority of people agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. We just have to get the representatives to listen. And it sounds like that's partly what you're doing. Well, a large degree of what you're doing there. And when you talk about Washington, D.C. and the farm bill this year, that is a, that is a uh, nationwide farm bill. And uh, it looks like you're gearing up to do some lobbying uh, for, I guess it's in September, you said this bill is going to come up again? Well, it's going to, the, the the current farm bill expires on September 30th. Um, they are, you know, talking about it. I don't know. If, I mean, they do a lot of this behind closed doors, Dan, too. And, and we really made it uh, a point this year to get ahead, um, get ahead of the game so that we weren't just, you know, dealing with, uh a farm bill that was already written, but actually trying to impact um, what is in the first draft of the farm bill. Um, you know, we need to break up these meatpacking giants. We need to stop taxpayers funding the industrialization and corporate takeover of um, of the livestock industry. We need to prioritize, you know, better production so that if and when we have another, you know, challenge like a global pandemic, we don't see the same bottleneck um, bottlenecks that we saw during the COVID challenge so that we can have more localized and regionalized um, food production and specifically livestock and meat production. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do in a farm bill that will make us stronger um, as opposed to what past farm bills have done is, you know, oftentimes made us less strong. Um, so we know what those we know what the problems are. We know what the history is. We know what the solutions are. You're exactly right. We just need our elected representatives to to listen and to actually represent us. Yeah. And and along the same topic too, there's something that that uh, you mentioned to me last time we talked in December, which just about knocked me out of my chair. I didn't realize this. And it's called the country of origin loophole. And uh, you 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 said that imported meat can bear a quote product of USA label simply if it's repackaged at a USDA inspected plant. And it, the funny thing is, since we since we had that conversation last December, I've been telling this to everyone I know, and I have yet to run across someone that already knew this. And it's a shock to everyone. And you know, I can't imagine that ranchers in the U.S. are happy about this. Uh, President Biden himself recently cited a statistic that most grass-fed beef labeled product of USA is actually imported. Uh, so can you bring us up to date on what the latest developments in this uh, in this uh, cool issue, COOL being the country of origin loophole? Well, COOL stands for country of origin labeling. Oh, labeling, um, sorry. And, yeah. yeah, and then we're working on fixing the loophole, and we're also working on mandatory country of origin labeling so that all the meat on our grocery store shelves says where it's born, raised, and harvested. Um, 
right now what that loophole is, it, it allows meat packers to bring in both boxed beef from around the world uh, and then cattle on the hoof, um, live cattle, which generally come from either Canada or Mexico, and then process it and say it's product of the United States. And what that does is it undercuts, you know, it increases the supply, undercuts the the um, prices paid to independent family farm cattle producers in Missouri and across our country. And since they have such a monopoly control over over the the industry itself, they can charge consumers whatever they want to charge consumers, whatever the market will bear, whatever consumers are just bare, barely willing to pay. And, you know, you, you people may ask, you know, how big a problem is this? Well, I've got, you know, what I have in front of me oftentimes, I've got uh, USDA Economic Research Service numbers in front of me. And in 2022, we imported 3.4 billion pounds of boxed beef, billion with a B. And we imported 1.6 million live cattle. That's real numbers. I mean, that's that's big amounts of imports. And, you know, at the same time, I mean, there has been a recent uptick in cattle prices, but for too long, cattle prices have been in the gutter and family farmers are just barely getting by just having it be a labor of love. Um, you know, it's a real issue right now. The Biden administration is, um, you know, is they've created and USDA has created a proposed rule to close that country of origin labeling loophole, which will, if passed and which if implemented, We'll say, you know, ideally, um, if cattle come in on the hoof or if cattle come in and or if beef comes in in boxes, that it can't be labeled product of the United States and it can't fool consumers into knowing and do thinking that, you know, the beef that they're buying on the grocery store shelves is raised by, you know, U.S. producers. Um, at the same time, we're fighting both in, in, in legislation, but also in the upcoming farm bill. Um, to fight for mandatory country of origin labeling. Uh, what we know is that uh, people out here, um, once again, across the political spectrum, um, want to know where their food comes from. They want to know specifically where their meat comes from. And they want to support and buy, you know, meat that's raised by U.S. independent family farmers. Um, so these are big issues. And, you know, the fact that the country of origin loophole exists and the fact that we don't have mandatory country of origin labeling is once again due to the undue influence of corporate meat packers and their lobbyists and the and the groups that represent them, you know, having that that influence over our democratic process, even though the vast majority of people out here are in support of country of origin labeling. Yeah, that's um, you, you try to be, you know, as a consumer. And as a patriot, you know, you want you want to do what's best for your country. And, you know, here you are, you want to buy American, right? And it's kind of hard to do these days with a lot of things because so much is, is foreign manufactured. And I get it, you know, foreign companies should be allowed to compete as well. But, you know, when you want to buy American beef or you want to buy American pork or whatever, um, pretty, well, we're talking about beef at this point, um, you, you it's it's just mislabeling. It's actually misleading the people to say this is a product of USA. It um, that's what I'm still having trouble getting my head around this concept because you want to do what's right and you think you're doing what's right, but it's actually cynically being uh, changed behind your back. You know, it doesn't make much sense. And you know, when when we bring people down to our state capitol building, um, and uh, you know, we talk about the issues we're talking about, um, and somebody raises their hand and says. 
well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, what mm -hmm. I unfortunately have to say is you're right. That doesn't make any sense. But down here, we have to sort of sometimes throw like reasonable and rational thinking, deductive logic out the door. And we have to try to see it through this, you know, this lens. Um, and, and what we're trying to do is now bring that ration um, and that reasonability back into the building so that these policies are actually based upon what's real and based upon our values and based upon, you know, what what this show um, is all about is about democracy. Um, so, you know, really fighting for real representative democracy is what we do at MRCC. And it's what the future generations are going to be doing as well. And our goal is to not only, you know, fight for the here and now, but, you know, fight for the future so that there's a foundation of, um, you know, democratic um, work and democratic organizing. So we can have good policies that uh, create a, a fair system. Yeah. You know, and this is, I guess, not directly related to rural crisis. It actually is a crisis that affects everyone in the state. Uh, and, and this is something MRCC is getting involved in as well, as I understand the initiative process in Missouri is under attack. And uh, what, what is the initiative process? Well, to quote the Missouri Constitution, uh, the people reserve power to propose and enact or reject laws and amendments to the Constitution by the initiative, independent of the General Assembly. Um, this is near and dear to my heart because it is perhaps the most direct form of democracy that we can see. And there are, uh, Missouri's is one of, I believe there's 24 states total that have similar rules written into their constitution, basically allows people to get together uh, through petition, which is a First Amendment right, and change their constitution. Uh, but it is under attack here in Missouri, as I suspect other states as well. Um, so MRCC is involved in this too, which is which I find to be fascinating. It's a great thing, is it actually affects, like I say, not just rural areas, but the urban and suburban areas as well. Uh, can you give a, give us a few words on how the Missouri Rural Crisis Center is involved in protecting this uh, column of democracy? We're just we're in support of you know people having a say, and you know the powers that be don't want people to have a say. So that's why you know they're trying to take away the ballot initiative process from people. Um, you know we're we're also a group, and earlier in this in this um, production you talked about Senate Bill three ninety one. We we believe in local control. We think local people should have a say. And in 2019, with Senate Bill 391, even though tens of thousands of people told the legislature, do not pass Senate Bill 391, we support local control, they did it anyways, because special interests don't like people having a say. And, uh, you know, them attempting to take away our ballot initiative process is just one more example of them saying, you know what, we know better, you know, trust us. And what we know is that the, the policies that come out of that building um, aren't oftentimes policies that are in the best interest of us. So, you know, we oftentimes have to take that into our own hands. And that's the ballot initiative process. And, you know, not only do the politicians themselves and the powers that be in that Capitol building, leadership in particular, um, but also special interests that, you know, in large part control that Capitol building. Um, you know, they don't want people to have a say. And this is just another example of that. Yeah. It's it's frustrating to see this come up because I, I always thought that the initiative and, and you know, it's at some point I always thought that Missouri was somewhat liberal. And it's, it used to be years ago, I guess, but uh, it was somewhat liberal in the sense that we had this initiative 
uh, thing possible within our constitution. And um, boy, we're losing that though, aren't we? And, and, and the initiative process is just one example, but everything else that you're fighting, it seems like everybody, uh, a majority of people are behind what you at the MRCC are doing for, for the average farmer but it just doesn't go that way in legislation, though, does it? You know, Dan, yeah, a liberal is a loaded word. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it, the ballot initiative process can also be seen as, you know, conservative. Um, you know, and the fight for, you know, open, fair, and competitive markets and for antitrust regulations and competition in markets could also be seen as, they can be seen as liberal or it could be seen as conservative. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, what we see and, and doing this work for so long and, really concentrating on reading and and studying the narrative development um, and, you know, what we read and what we believe is possible. Um, what we know is that is that their goal is to create wedge issues and to divide us as much as possible so that they can take the power. And, you know, one way they do that is by, you know, saying liberal, conservative, you know, libertarian, progressive. But like I said before, when we bring all of those types of people into the same room and we talk about these issues that we're talking about right now, everybody's shaking their head. Yes. You know, so our goal is to unite people um, because what we know is that their, their ability to divide people also creates uh, the situation we're in now where we don't get good policies because they, you know, work on a narrative that makes us fight each other as opposed to organize together to fight for good policies. And and that's what we're all about here is organizing together, working together to fight for good policies that benefit our, you know, to benefit all of our economies and all of our communities. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, yeah, it, it uh, you, you do tend to put that on the spectrum like I did by saying it's liberal, but I think that you have a really good point there. And, you know, you look back at when the antitrust laws were first being passed in this country, which I believe was around the early 1900s, that was what they called the progressive era back then, and they labeled it progressive. But, um, you know, it was actually Republicans that were leading that charge, and uh, which I thought was very interesting. You had guys like Fighting Bob LaFollette from Wisconsin um, out in front on a lot of these issues, uh, unionization, uh, anti-child labor laws, um, the right for women to vote. Uh, you know, the antitrust laws came out uh, right around that same time period. And um, it was a really a, a great uh, a great move forward for this country, and it just seems like now you're right. I think people put too many labels on things, and once you slap something with with a label, it conjures up all sort of predefined notions in your head that um, that uh, allow you to then discard them without even considering what what you're discarding, and and you know supporting legislation that actually works against your best interest. Um, so anyways, I'm just, that's, that's my philosophy for the day. Uh, we're kind of need to wrap this up here. Um, what can people do to learn more about the Missouri Rural Crisis Center and get involved? Well, they should go, you know, you can call me, um, if you want to talk, um, you know, if you want to get involved, go to our website, you can uh, easily sign up to get involved, join the Missouri Rural Crisis Center. We're a membership organization. You can do that from our website. Um, you can also follow us on social media. Um, you know, you could send me an email, you know, just get involved as, as little or as much as possible. And, um, or just, I guess, get involved as much as possible. We know that, you know, our lives are busy and um, there's a lot going on right now, but, 
Um, these are big issues that we're that we're fighting for. And um, you know, whatever we can do to help you, um, not only you, Dan, but all your listeners, you know, please reach out. That's what we're here for. Um, we I really appreciate this opportunity. Um, I really appreciate everybody listening. And um, you know, just continue to fight like hell because we got a lot to fight for, and it's worth fighting for. Good, and you can find the Missouri Rural Crisis Center online. I believe the online is M-O-R-U-R-A-L, morural.org. Is that correct? That's correct. And I would I would encourage anyone in any other states also to tune into this website because um, it's not just Missouri, right? And I think, you know, we talked about Iowa a little bit. And they're having um, a lot of issues in Iowa as well, which is just north of Missouri here. But all rural areas are... Uh, are under, well, maybe too bold to say they're under attack, but certainly there are a lot of challenges that uh, they're facing that the people in Missouri here are facing as well. So uh, that's M-O-R-U-R-A-L, morural.org. I appreciate it, Dan. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and, and we've been talking with Tim Gibbons, the communication director for the Missouri Rural Crisis Center. Tim, thank you very much for joining us again today. Thanks, Dan. Good luck out there. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by Al Ray Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you'll tune in again next week. <laughs>